lot of those difficult problems and those difficult tasks disappear um, by understanding and appreciating the value of what I'm learning and the mm. value of the experience that I'm gaining, not about what I'm getting paid for that task. And Dimension Technologies, uh, welcome onto the show. Uh, I've been really looking forward to having you on. One part, one thing is, you know, you're a startup out of the East Coast, out of Nova Scotia. Second thing, you're a, a hardware software startup. Um, that's always cool because you're creating physical things. That's, a, that's always a different challenge than, you know, a tech company that launches a software. Uh, been looking forward to having you on. So, Corey, uh, what's uh, what's happening? Yeah. Hey, Ravi. Thanks for having me. Uh, really excited to be on the program um, today. So yeah, Dispension Industries, we're a life sciences technology company from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And we're really focused on using secure automated kiosks uh, equipped with advanced biometrics to securely distribute restricted products. Yeah. So a lot to digest there, right? You're trying to create a kiosk system you can place into cities, retail locations, and places where sensitive, um, I guess, sensitive products can be placed in a safe, secure environment that can be accessed by the people who need them. But again, with some verification involved, right? So I was going through your website, and you know, you guys have uh, three main things, challenges you're trying to focus on. You know, one, um, this biometric scanning technology that allows uh, the, your machine to detect the right person who can get get get, uh, get an item right that uh, that's again regulated and heavily regulated. So make sure it gets the right person. But also, what I like about it is it's a distributed technology, so that it's it's it, you know you have an overarching uh, um, idea of the landscape. So if one person goes to one location, tries to take out a prescription, they can't go to a different machine, they can't go to a different kiosk and like or a different retailer and try to use the same prescription and get multiple things. So you have a, a database over a wider scale. You have a software a software platform play. You have this hardware that allows to you know do the scan and get get the items to the right person. And then lastly, you know you have this uh, you have this piece for, which is uh, for retailers to be able to ha provide a, a novel kind of offering in their location. Is that correct? Those are the three kind of verticals. Yeah, and and you know I think uh, that all comes back to the amount of data that would be available for uh, these retailers and government agencies to, to better know consumers. So um, I'll, I'll break down uh, each of those um, those components individually. Uh, the, the backbone to dispension is the automated kiosk technology that we use. Um, mm -hmm. So kiosks are uh, secure, trusted IoT devices, uh, and they are equipped with advanced biometrics and tamper-proof hardware to restrict access to uh, these products, whether it's cannabis, alcohol, pharmaceuticals, lottery and gaming, or nicotine products, um, to people who are either A, uh, identified um, as patients, or B, identified as a legal age um, consumer for uh, retail products. So mm -hmm. our technology um, is being deployed in uh, different verticals for different purposes, but primarily um, we're focused on using automated kiosks and, and advanced uh, uh, biometrics to uh, support the distribution challenges and really protect public health and safety with a harm reduction lens. Mm -hmm. um, the second aspect is the uh, the software and this um, you know this ecosystem that we're creating, this secure ecosystem uh, where participants can access uh, different machines across the network um, 
but they couldn't access more than they're allowed. They're legally allowed. So in um, the case of a patient, uh, a patient could access their medication from you know one of three machines, but once they access it from that location, they're unable to access more until uh, you know the next day. Or mm-hmm. in uh, you know for example with cannabis, um, um, retail customers could purchase up to 28 grams of cannabis um, from our kiosk, but wouldn't be allowed to purchase more at a different retail location. So it's really about this integrated uh, ecosystem where data is transferred across the network and uh, and really housed in a, you know an analytics database. Then mm-hmm. uh, you know as far as how that data is being used, um, we are really positioning this to support the the, the you know the public um, health and safety policies around distributing these products. Uh, and we're using this data for scientific, medical, and ad- advertising purposes. Yeah. Um, just a quick word about the the, uh, the kiosk, right? So is this is this more like a kiosk, like you know you see at McDonald's where you make the order, at, but then there's a backend system, aka retail, that actually provides vends vends uh, the item out, or is it a vending uh, machine built into it as well, like with a dual purpose? Like can you can it, can it self operate? Yeah, uh, so this is a vending machine uh, on steroids. Mm. Uh, we, uh, you know, we've advanced the vending machine to uh, be a smart connected device. And um, as you've seen, probably in Asia, there are uh, a number of different vending machines for different purposes. Some of them make pizzas, some of them still sell uh, steak. And our technology and our verticals are really focused on restricted products and being a global leader and you know, harm reduction around these restricted products. Um, so if you want to think about it in a very simple way, uh, it's a sophisticated vending machine that actually contains all of the products that consumers are trying to access, but it provides, um, you know, more safety and security for the retailer and for government agencies who are trying to distribute these products by using advanced biometrics to um, age gate consumers or identify patients in a, in a medical uh, application. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like uh, this, uh, I got a flash of memory. Um, one of my friends, um, Praveen, he's like a, he was a former VP at Tesla and he was uh, on, on social media, like uh, putting up this, uh, they had at, at Tesla's uh, the food station, this uh, vending machine that made ramen. But yeah. the, the the provider of the vending machine, right? Like their Instagram page, they can they they um they describe themselves as an IoT blockchain artificial intelligence company, right? And it's like, okay, you're making ramen, but why do you have blockchain and, and AI involved into it? Like, what are you doing here? But like you know, and that was that was a running joke. And like you know, we have this kind of like startup landscape where. You're overachieving by putting too much technology into something that is, you know, does like a very simple, uh, simple thing. But in your case, you know, you're going after a very, um, not just regulated, but very vulnerable population, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're dealing with vulnerable people. You're dealing with regulations. You're allowing for a more sophisticated approach to distributions of, of these kind of products. So the amount of technology um, or the amount of, uh, of um uh, I guess uh, effort that goes into securing this environment must be uh, immense. Like, can you talk a little more about your journey? Let's let's cut this down. Like, where where did you start from, and how this how does it even begin? 
Yeah. And and you're right. Um, you know, we're going after a sophisticated industry with a lot of regulatory barriers and compliance standards. And uh, that really brings us back to when this first started. Um, so in 2017, I was having a conversation with a, with a few buddies um, about the uh, impending cannabis legalization framework here in, in Canada. And um, we were kicking the tires on different ways that we could hypothetically get involved in the industry as entrepreneurs. Um, I had a background in clean tech and did a lot of business development work in that in that world um, for quite a while. And, and I felt like, um, you know, it wasn't exciting enough for me. And, and I wanted to get into something that was more, you know, hands on and, and that uh, could really see a lot of growth. And during the conversation about um, cannabis legalization, uh, the idea of vending machines was brought up. And I thought about it, you know, that's cool. Started thinking about it more and did some research and really figured that uh, in order for a vending machine to distribute cannabis securely and for it to be um, you know, regulated and compliant uh, with the, you know, the objectives of, um, of the, the legalization framework, it would need to have some kind of uh, you know, authentication system that wouldn't allow access to youth and that wouldn't allow access to people who are, um, you know, who are, who are not uh, able to produce identification. And so around um, 2018, we, uh, we really started to kick things into high gear. And um, one day I met Dr. Mark Tyndall, who uh, had this idea of using vending machines to distribute opioids um, as a scalable way to uh, reduce the impact of the overdose crisis. And thinking about, you know, how we position this for cannabis and how it could be applied um, in, in this other direction, I had kind of a revelation at, that we weren't just building technology for a specific vertical. We were building a platform that could distribute restricted products using advanced biometrics in a number of different verticals. Um, and so the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the company started to grow based on, um, you know, this concept that we were building a platform that could securely distribute a product using the similar principles across all of the verticals. Uh, and that includes, you know, biometrics, tamper-proof security, bulletproof glass, um, bolted to the floor, all of these things that government agencies care about, no matter what product you're distributing. It's all about safety, security, and oversight. Mm. So looking at uh, the cannabis regs um, and then, uh, you know, the, the Narcotics Control Act and all these different, uh, you know, legislative um, documents, the theme was very similar, that there needed to be uh, traceability, oversight and compliance. And from there, um, we started to, you know, explore other opportunities in different verticals. And uh, through this um, relationship with Dr. Mark Tyndall, uh, we ended up building a kiosk that was specifically suited for distributing opioids as part of a safe supply program um, called the MySafe Project. Uh, the MySafe Project was um, established in late 2019 uh, in December, where we deployed a kiosk in Vancouver in the downtown east side to distribute a uh, prescribed opioid to people who are at risk of overdosing on street fentanyl and, and different mm. uh, contaminated substances. Uh, and so this this project allowed us to validate our technology um, in a market um, and really support the challenges of 
you know, low barrier access um, for a safe supply of drugs so that people wouldn't overdose. And, and what came out of it was really, um, you know, that participants liked a destigmatized way uh, to use and, and access these medications. And I mm -hmm. think, um, you know, that principle applies to all of these industries that, you know, if a consumer has the option uh, to use an unattended solution to get their products, that they're, they're more likely to use, to use that service. Uh, even for cannabis, um, there's still a lot of stigma attached with consumers talking to people about products that uh, they don't really feel comfortable talking about. And so the uh, unattended solution um, has really improved uh, the user experience with, um, you know, restricted product access. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting part about how society has so rapidly changed, right? Especially with the legalization in Canada, right? Like uh, of cannabis. Now we're looking into the decriminalization and uh, eventual legalization of psychedelics in research, right? Um, I think Kevin O'Leary invested into MindMed and that made moves like a super conservative like Kevin O'Leary, who's like investing into mind med, is that pushing psychological, um, psych, uh, what's it, um, um, uh, you know, psychedelic, thank you, psychedelic drugs as a, as a, as a, for therapy, you know, it really opens up and changes suddenly our worldview, right? We have like, you know, the past, what, 80 years of like, don't do drugs kind of movement, right? These drugs are completely bad and giving a monopoly to uh, the, the actual industry. Right, the, the 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 drug and manufacturing industry to actually um, uh, to uh, to you know treat people with like more um, like you know manufactured drugs, if you will, mm -hmm. right? And uh, we're we're like restructuring ourselves. And I, I really enjoy this conversation that a lot of, a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of, became more and more open about how you know these things that grow out of the ground, you know, are being reinstitutionized, rebrought in back into our into our society to, you know, metamorphosize ourselves, you know, to fix ailing solutions. Um, so let's so, so a little bit about that. Like, you know, I know you talked about you know, opioids and like, you know, the, the more regulated, uh, regulated uh, things like that. But what are other verticals? You know, you talked about lottery tickets. You talked about this things like what are the different things that you can have um, on your on your platform here? Right. And is it like really a truly omnichannel? Like, is it like you can have one machine meant for like, you know, one thing or can have a multiple multitude of things running behind it? Like how could it function? Yeah, and uh, so we've, we've broken our uh, market verticals into uh, med tech and vice tech. Uh, mm. So the med tech verticals include, uh, you know, pharmaceutical distribution, harm reduction strategies. We're working um, with First Nations to uh, reduce, um, you know, the, the, the risks and the challenges of uh, distributing pharmaceuticals and, and offering, um, you know, medical care. Uh, so you can integrate a virtual virtual care platform into our technology and you can actually communicate directly with physicians and pharmacists through the platform. Um, so it really expands access to healthcare services for communities as well. Um, we have uh, applications in elder care and corrections um, using this technology to distribute uh, medication and prescriptions on a daily basis um, in a secure way, um, specifically in the corrections space. Mm. A lot of um, inmates have prescriptions for various medications. Some of them are dealing with acute illnesses uh, such as HIV and Hep C. Um, so adherence and, and uh, retention to uh, programs, treatment programs, is very important. Um, 
And so how do you track people's retention to these programs? Well, you can do that by using biometrics and kiosks in order to distribute these products uh, and, and do it securely. So yeah. you know, in a prison, people go to a pharmacy within that um, facility on a regular basis and, and you can actually reduce risk to frontline workers and improve the experience for that uh, patient by mm. using automated kiosks. Um, and then the, in, in the vice tech space, we're going after, as we talked about, the cannabis industry, uh, providing a scalable solution to reduce the impact of the black market and provide access to legal cannabis in all corners of the country by using low cost automated kiosks. Yeah. Uh, these kiosks are networked together in real time. Um, you can provide direct information to the consumer about products that they're interested in purchasing. Um, so it's also an education platform um, for you know products in a retail setting. Uh, we're also pursuing opportunities in the alcohol beverage space. Um, you know you talk about uh, COVID and how COVID has impacted the world and how people watch sports and live venues. Um, well, the future will, you know, the, the stadium of the future will have automated kiosks um, to reduce face-to-face -face contact and reduce congestion uh, in the concourse and really provide people with a new purchasing experience. Um, so, you know, we have machines that are being developed uh, to dispense beer and, and uh, other beverages. Uh, and then um, we're also looking at some opportunities uh, within the convenience, the C-store uh, space where, you know, convenience stores are trusted to sell all kinds of products. They're trusted mm. to sell lottery tickets, cigarettes, alcohol, and in some places like Newfoundland, cannabis as well. Um, so, you know, why not put all of those products within a safe, secure environment and store it um, in a space in the store that's not taking up prime real estate in the front counter? Um, a lot of uh, you know, staff uh, are under pressure uh, to identify uh, people accurately and using our technology, we take that onus off the staff and actually improve the, in the flow, the traffic flow within that, uh, that store. And you take the risk away from people who might not be adequately trained to actually, uh, you know, identify um, people and, and make sure that uh, they are of legal age to purchase the products. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways that you can deploy this technology within existing um, infrastructure, whether it's you know, a convenience store, a hospital, a cannabis retailer, um, or even a medical clinic. So we're really focused on um, pursuing opportunities in all these verticals. Um, there is quite a bit of uh, opportunity out there. And, you know, we have been accused of trying to boil the ocean. But <laughs> I think at the end of the day, um, we have a platform that can be modified um, in a very cost-effective way. Uh, to apply to various verticals. And so mm -hmm. uh, we've been pursuing opportunities in all of them. Yeah. Um, what I like about what, what I like about you is um, you guys are solving very complex problems in, in a very in a, in a lot of different verticals. You know, I like the idea of vice tech. I, I've never actually heard that term vice tech, right? The idea that, you know, uh, like that, that stigma exists on, on the, the vices that we all have. And I think, you know, 
almost every human has got vice. It could be an addiction to sugar or coffee, or it could be something more illicit. And, uh, you know, and uh, that stigma around that, like, you know, this, these, there are certain things that are allowed that we, we can joke about, you know, like, oh, too much coffee today, right? And uh, that, 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 that pulls our behavior in a certain direction, you know, it, it's fine. But the idea that things like human beings by nature, like any other animals can be addicted to things or can be drawn to things uh, that gives them, uh, can, you know, hack their reward system and to take them over. I think that's, that requires a lot more sophisticated thinking, right? So I like the idea that, of technology being applied in this, right? Um, your, your software side, you know, you, you talk a lot about this data, pulling the data, right? Can we talk a little more about that data, right? Like what kind of data are you hoping to achieve to pull? Who's it meant for? How will it be stored? Yeah, the uh, the data is quite complex, and and uh, to be honest, it's a bit over my head as far as uh, you know the value of the data and the monetization strategy, and it really is um, something that we're we're still working to develop. Um, but the data that we're currently uh, de- that we're currently um, creating through the MySafe project uh, is being used for scientific and medical evaluation purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the data that's coming in from the transactions is you know, the, the participant ID, the time of day, frequency of use, uh, whether there's weather factors on picking up their medication, um, the distance from a participant's dwelling to the machine. So there's a lot of uh, interesting metrics that can be drawn um, and, and, and used to better understand substance use and the patterns of substance use. Um, so all of this information that's being collected is uh, stored as per PAPITA standards. Uh, we're currently working on HIPAA compliance as well. Mm. Um, so we're we're very conscious of the the value of the data and uh, the way that it has to be handled. Uh, we actually have a data privacy uh, and compliance team um, that's made up of a few uh, you know former vice presidents of information security at uh, some uh, top tech companies here in Canada. Uh, so we do have a plan in place um, to deal with this data and and make sure that uh, it's protected and anonymized. Um, but uh, yeah, we haven't fully uh, tapped the value of that data in a retail sense, where um, you can, you know, use that data as a manufacturer to better understand what products consumers are are, are using in in real time. Essentially, um, you can use that as a retailer to better understand what products consumers are are drawn to, and uh, you know, for advertising purposes. So we we think that um, the amount of data that uh, is being generated by these kiosks will allow for all kinds of new insights uh, based on that direct consumer correlation. Um, mm. The biometrics tie people directly to the products that they consume, um, so you know exactly what's going on at all times and you can use that data to understand consumer trends uh for all kinds of different purposes yeah um i think that'll be really interesting data to pour through would it i mean would the end product like the data be provided to like regulators or would it be like health canada um think tanks who look into this like who would be like end proprietor of the data yeah, currently we're working with uh, universities on evaluation of the data for um, for our uh, health project. Uh, I don't want to divulge too many details yet, um, but we're uh, you know we're careful with who has access to it. It's being used for medical and scientific purposes at the moment, um, but it would be provided to 
you know, regulators or, or government agencies for health studies. Uh, it would be provided to retailers and manufacturers of products and even consumers uh, to understand how their data is being used. We want the consumer to have the option to opt in or out um, and, and to, you know, benefit from sharing that information about their consumption behaviors. But, um, yeah, ultimately, we understand how important it is to maintain uh, the, you know, the privacy of that information. Um, we are consumers ourselves, and, you know, we've been using a lot of um, apps over the years. I'm sure you have as have I, and we never really know what's being done with our data. And mm -hmm. so we're trying to understand it from a consumer's perspective. Um, how can we uh, incentivize them to allow us to understand uh, consumption patterns better? No. Um, okay, cool. Let's 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 step back from the the the, the company and let's talk about the founder yourself. You know. Um, did you grow up in an environment where this was like a necessary need? Um, I, I grew up in Scarborough, right? In, I mean, it's a suburb of Toronto, yeah. uh, but not really a suburb. It's more like an inner city kind of environment where, you know, there was a huge, huge problem with violence and drugs and uh, growing up, right? It was a very turbulent time, uh, early 2000s in Scarborough and even, even the late, even in the 90s. And man, I remember like in, in Ontario, um, you know, all all the alcohol is is sold by the government, right? With LCBO and with Beer Star. And I remember, like me and my friends, we started buying alcohol when we were 16. You know, we, we looked old enough, had a wispy little beard, and we we got along with it. And it was just so prominent, like everyone drank, everyone had access to things, right? Uh, cigarettes, all that kind of stuff. Like you know, you you're growing up, right? All these substances were around, all these negative influences around. There's always older people hanging around high schools, you know, with all these different supply of things uh, readily available, right? And all that influence is there. What I love about today's society is like, yeah, we, we talk about our youth now are overly regulated, right? Like they're put into this environment where like there's cameras everywhere and there's all this, all this kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, individuality taken out because it's too structured. But at the same time, they're safer than they ever were, right? Um, the school's a lot safer. They're, you know, we have uh, a, a peek through social media into what they're into and what they're doing, right? But going back to how you grew up, like, what was that look like? Yeah, uh, well, I spent some time in Scarborough as well. Not uh, not when I was growing up, but um, yeah, I understand uh, you know the the dynamic of an inner city. Uh, growing mm -hmm. up in Halifax, uh, in Dartmouth, actually the dark side, as it's referred to, um, we had similar issues. Uh, not on such a large scale, but, you know, there were um, people pressuring uh, their their peers uh, to consume alcohol at a young age and to smoke a joint and, you know, do ecstasy. And so there was always that influence um, of unregulated products being peddled by peers. Uh, and it's, it's funny, um, you know, if you think back to uh, when people were buying cannabis from from their buddy down the road or from the kid at school it, it was just i want to buy some weed it was never i want to buy some with this terpene profile and this many you know, <laughs> this, this percentage of thc and cbd so uh it's it's really changed a lot it's become a lot more scientific um and we understand these products a lot better um but you know i think the need for uh, distribution 
system for these products has always been there, but the technology maybe didn't exist uh, to allow for um, you know 100% verified unattended uh, transactions of these restricted products. So you know people at convenience stores who are operating the store or at the the liquor store, they were always beholden to uh, you know. The, the quality of the ID that was being uh, used mm. by, the, by the consumer or, you know, it really comes down to human judgment. And um, the issue of human judgment still exists. And so this is what we're trying to, um, you know, improve is the accuracy of uh, age gating consumers and identifying, um, you know, patients, for example, uh, because the technology exists to allow us to do that now. Uh, and so the way that we're positioning ourselves is to enhance the age gating systems and enhance the security um, and, and compliance and oversight of these products that are being distributed so they can't be accessed by youth. Um, and that might disappoint 16-year-old you, uh, but at the end of the day, we're trying to protect the public and protect the health of our of our youth. So. Mm. Uh, you know, the technology that we're developing has a real focus on harm reduction and how we can prevent access to youth, how we can reduce the impact of the black market by providing more access to these products in a secure way, um, and really using a data-driven approach to understand consumption behaviors uh, and, you know, the, um, I guess, the, the metrics behind these products and who is using them, when they're using them, and what they're using them for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the, like, uh, I guess, uh, the dark humor moments about the cannabis industry, right, is a lot of the people, a lot of like police officers, high, high functioning, police, high, high, high level police officers who led the charge of like, you know, um, of uh, criminalizing, uh, of, of like, uh, of uh, following the protocol of criminalizing uh, cannabis use, you know, when cannabis was uh, legalized, they flipped over into the cannabis industries. And that was, I remember that there being a huge up, a public outcry about that. But like, like the, the such a sudden switch in society, we like, I think in Canada, like we have this societal kind of uh, like new lens we see things now. Because after, especially something like cannabis, like turned into a legal, uh, legal environment where it's now like, yeah, you can consume it. You can even smoke on the street now. It's completely fine. It starts, we are we jumpstarting this mentality. It's like, what is true? You know, like, you know, like that, 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 that's a line from Assassin's Creed. It's like, nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think one of like, one of the reasons why Canada has become such a hub for innovation is that, you know, there's this line I, I quote from, um, uh, I think Emma Goldberg who talked about this, uh, she said, um, uh, no good, every good idea starts off illegal because the laws are static and take a long time to change. And ideas by nature are new and uh, new systems, right? So, so it, innovation requires a lot of new ideas, competitive ideas. Like, look at Uber, look at uh, Airbnb. They were illegal, right? They were, you know, focused on gray market. They were capturing gray market I and mean, black market um, industries, right? Like uh, renting your, uh, you know, going against uh, cabs and not having a medallion and and rent, uh, and uh, doing uh, taxi services to renting out your houses, right? Like. A lot of innovation requires you to push the forefront of what 
been acceptable or what's what an acceptable way of doing things were right and i think canada suddenly become open to the ideas of like okay what else can we push what else can we change and as a society i think we've got more open to that you know we're we're seen as a conservative nation but at the same time we're very progressive in the way we think and i think one of the interesting things about especially your industry and what you're trying to target is that we're no longer um you know bumping down the, the end user, you know, if you have a vice, if you have these kind of afflictions, if you're going to be using, right, we're, we're thinking more of a society like, okay, you know what, if you're gonna be doing it, might as well do it safely. Mm -hmm. Might as well, like, you know, give us data back so we can figure out, you know, if you're overdoing it, or if you need help, uh, we can give you that help. You know, I think BC kind of led the charge here with those like needle stations, right? Cool, you're gonna be doing drugs, fine. Here's a place, at least get safe needles. If you're gonna do it, do it here, right? And there's a lot of like the residential outcry being like, you know, you're bringing all these like, you know, drug users into one area, but at the same time, at least they're being safe about it. Right. Mm. And I'm sorry, but, go ahead. You know, just on that point, um, it's really interesting because the, uh, the common conception is that we have safe injection sites, so it must be safer. Mm. Um, and in some ways it is. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, uh, regulatory uh, heavy lifting that was required to allow these safe injection sites to operate and these needle exchange programs, as you mentioned. Um, but just until recently, people were still committing crimes and purchasing illicit substances um, and, and using them in a safe space. Mm. Right? So technically, we're still... Um, you know, we're, we're, we're still allowing the behavior to take place to acquire the illicit substance, which then can overdose a person and put stress on first responders and the, the, the healthcare system. Um, so by using technology to distribute a safe supply of drugs, a regulated supply, uh, you know, we reduce their dependency on crime, on sex work and all these, you know, horrible things. And then you're not putting people in danger of overdosing and taking up, uh, you know, these precious um, healthcare resources, which we know now are even uh, more fragile now than than they have been. So, I think the way that you're talking about this and and Canada's, um, you know, progressive approach, it's really I think based on common sense mm. and using technology to enhance the ability to distribute these products uh, and, and make sure that they're secure and they're regulated is part of that common sense approach. And I think with, um, you know, the examples of Airbnb and Uber, like really great examples where the regulations um, had to catch up mm -hmm. to these innovative companies um, who identified a demand and a need in the market and then started to implement their model and, and you know, started to force the regulators and, and these um, industries to ad adopt new policies and new ways of doing things um, because the consumer always speaks the loudest. And I think, you know, in the, um, in the example of illicit drugs and the, the way that Canadians have been using substances over many years, and some people use coffee, and some people drink alcohol. Um, well, some people use opioids, and some mm -hmm. people use cocaine, and there, there's uh, you know a consumer for everything. Um, and if these products are distributed in a more safe, secure, regulated way, then at least you don't have to worry about the risks of organized crime, uh, the risks of 
you know, overdoses and uh, all the public resources that go into, um, you know, responding to overdoses rather than preventing them in the first place. So I think with our technology, we're providing a new distribution mechanism for these products, which provides safer, secure access um, with the data that will allow us to better understand patterns of use and the demographics. Um, so it really is, um, you know, I think right in line with what you're saying that, yes, there are regulatory barriers in our industry. Uh, every single vertical has them. Um, I'm sure an investor uh, doesn't want to hear that, but it is true. And so what mm -hmm. we're doing is we're uh, aligning ourselves with, um, you know, very strong uh, supporters in the industry with partners um, that are leaders in the space, experts uh, in regulatory compliance, and we're pushing the boundaries because our technology uh, improves lives, it improves safety and security, and um, we think it's only really a matter of time before this becomes you know, more globally adopted as a way to distribute these products. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I experienced it myself. So uh, my, my father is actually uh, a former corrections officer, 16 years into corrections and super conservative. He's second generation, like army, uh, army, like, you know, British trained commando, like, like growing up super oh, harsh stance. Badass. Badass, scary ass dude, right? When he says no to drugs, it's like you listen, right? Yeah. Growing up, it was like, that's a hard no. But like now, you know, he's in his like, he's turning 60 and he's like, everything's legal. And he's like, you know, like, it'd be kind of fun to own a dispensary. And I'm like, what? Right? Like the, the rapid shift in like thinking, right? That requires. And I'm like, I'm, I'm seeing it from him. Like, you know, this hard stance conservative dude. It's just like, oh yeah, it's legal. It's perfectly normal now. Like, you know, there's no chaos in the streets. Yeah. Right? And the regulation aspect of it has actually made things better. Right, uh, we, have, we have more insight, we have more control. No longer uh, is, a, is there a legal component to it. No longer is there like a, is there a gray market or black market uh, feeding off of this, um, you know, um, un unregulated substance, right? Just cannabis. And I think like that's 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 a main factor of the drug war, right? The fact that we took it as a war on drugs, right? Like you know, ex exported from the United States to every, to everyone else, is that. We turn, we demonize these things. One thing, but it also opened up this idea for criminal enterprises to develop around them, right? And the amount of of money just props them up, right? There was this um, podcast uh, where like uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, crack cocaine dealers was talking about this. Um, Freeway, uh, Rick, uh, Ross. Rick Ross, right? He was talking about this. He's like, yo, like the whole reason we were able to do this was because of the legal. You can't get it anywhere else. So of course, the most badass dudes would, would, you know, who would take the risk, who doesn't care for the consequences, they would go into this and they can make the money, right? And the worse you were, the more violent you were, the more you cornered the market. Mm -hmm. So the war on drugs created the violence behind it by by empowering the people who want who are willing to commit violence um, by you know giving them a way to make money off of it, right? And it, it's such an interesting concept, like. I like that, especially the psychedelic movement. I mean, I'm really enjoying, right? Um, I was listening to um, just previously before this, Dr. Carl Hart. He's a neuroscientist um, who studies the effects of drugs in the brain, but he's he himself is an avid user um, of like almost all, almost all illicit drugs. You know, he wears T-shirts with the chemical compounds of drugs on them, and uh, and and he was talking about this, like you know, like we have a negative connotation uh, stereotype that people who use drugs are just deadbeats. Mm -hmm. 
But whereas there's there's been historical evidence of like high functioning people who uses these things, right? And 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 I think what what's interesting is like you know um, have you heard about about uh, there's like a uh, I forgot the exact term, but um, uh, McKenna uh, talked about this, right? About um, mushrooms leading to giving humans the ability to have imagination. So the the, the uh, taking mushrooms like magic mushrooms. Um, you know, allowed the neurochemically different parts of the brain to connect, to give the brain the ability to have to imagine things that are not there, right? So being able to look at a mountain, like I, I imagine myself on top of that mountain, that aspect, uh, or like looking at looking at a rock and a stick and being like, oh, if I if I do this, it can create that, right? That aspect of humanity's ability came from con- ingesting all this, right? And uh, and even like if you look at societal patterns of how societies have used uh, substances to like bind themselves together, right? I really enjoy the show Vikings, and in Vikings they have this like once a year event where they go out and they all get messed up on mushrooms and hallucinate. But through that they have this awakening about who they are and like you know, and it's like it's built into their culture, and the resurgence of this of especially mushrooms and uh, and psychedelics is coming out of uh, out of that region of the world again, like you know that's historically. They used it back in the day. There's a culture coming back, uh, back around this. So I really like like where we're heading, the more progressive ideas of like, okay, it's not just black and white anymore. There's like a more more, uh, more of a deeper understanding is required of what's happening in the illicit market, right? What, what about yourself? Like, um, what, do you, what do you see happening? Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, you know, your perspective is very interesting. And I, I also did hear that theory about early humans uh, experimenting with psychedelics and and kind of developing consciousness and being able to think outside their present, which is really uh, a neat theory and evolution, all these things that uh, you know gave gave birth to us uh, many centuries later. Um, you know, it, it's very fascinating to think about um, how we became the way we are. Uh, and you know, as far as um, the substances that people use and the the way that the world treats certain things, um, it, it just shows that we're we're kind of getting past this war on drugs era, where a lot of these substances are being recognized for their medical purposes again, um, whether it's cannabis or psychedelics, uh, even you know the use of uh, cocaine back in the day uh, as a pain reliever. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they're not. Uh, it, it's that that one's not uh, making a comeback uh, quite yet. But um, on the cannabis and psychedelic space, it really shows that these substances have medical benefits. Um, whether you're using them to reduce stress, or using them to uh, you know improve mood, or reduce the effects of PTSD, um, I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, you know next few decades as not only Canada, but other countries start to recognize uh, the, the benefits and the value of legalizing these uh, substances and, and using them for maybe the, the purposes that they've always been meant to be used for, mm-hmm. and not looking at them like something that is bad. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, um, you know, moderation is key, <laughs> as with anything, um, and this goes back to the initial conversation about humans being innately addicted to things. Um, it's just something that, uh, you know, is part of human nature. Some people just love football, mm-hmm. right? They can't get enough of it. Some yeah, people yeah. love playing 
poker. Um, so everyone has uh, their own vices. And I think um, the fact that some people's vices have been criminalized to a point where it's completely ruined their lives or their families' lives uh, is unfortunate. And, and now um, it seems like common sense is prevailing. And if mm -hmm. it's not harming someone else, then what's the harm in you know, allowing people to consume these products in, in a moderated way um, or in a regulated environment. So I think, um, you know, it comes back to alcohol harms more people and creates, you know, more deaths and, and leads to more violence than anything else uh, mm -hmm. that we consume, but yet it's widely uh, consumed. It's uh, allowed to be advertised to uh, a, a general audience, children included, and it just seems like one of those things that everybody consumes and nobody uh, talks about how much damage it causes. Um, you know, so you could you could talk about the way that these products are um, are hurting people, but mm. you could also look at how these products can benefit uh, lives and think we've really started to understand that more in the psychedelics and the, the cannabis space, that there is real medical value to uh, these products, and we're starting to learn more about them every day. And the more countries that uh, recognize the benefits, um, the more countries our technology will be uh, you know, deployed in to distribute these products. And we're really focused on harm reduction and distributing these products in a safe and secure manner. So. Um, yeah. You know, it's all about limiting consumption and uh, preventing uh, people from abusing these substances uh, and providing them with access to a regulated uh, product, in yeah. no, no matter what uh, vertical. Yeah. And of course, I mean, more than illicit substances, like you're talking about, this is, you know, for anything that's regulated, not just like the, the illicit stuff, right? So, um, you know, any, any kind of regulated product. So, uh, you know, what I like about this is, you know, using some uh, some cool tech behind it, right? The, your biometric scanner, um, I think it looks at the, the veins in your hand, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily just your finger, like your, your fingerprints. It does a biometric scan of this, right? Um, I know, like, so in Toronto, there was a really famous company called uh, Nimi uh, that really just like right at the beginning of 2013 when the tech scene started, it really blew up out of, Toronto, city, uh, out of um, the University of Toronto. And what they realized was your heartbeat releases um, an electromagnetic pulse that travels across your skin. And that, that electromagnetic pulse is so uh, unique to an individual that it's a thousand times more unique signature than your fingerprint, right? And they built this armband around it where, where it can read that, that pulse and then now then broadcast that. So you can open things, unlock things based off of that the, the signature that give it, uh, that, that that feeds the armband, which then gives like turns it into like uh, into code that can send a, send a pulse, uh, you know, electronically to things like unlock things. And they really kickstarted this like biometric kind of movement, you know, this interest like oh man, there's a lot of things going on in your body that can be used to identify you. That's different, mm -hmm. right? You guys are, do, are doing a different methodology. Can you talk a little bit about your biometrics? Yeah, the biometric system that we're using, uh, as you mentioned, um, it looks at the internal vein pattern in a consumer's palm. Um, it uses infrared light to scan your internal vein pattern, and then it extracts that using image processing and, and uh, you know, turns it into a numeric hash that yeah. is encrypted with, uh, you know, 256 and very secure and anonymized. Um, and so that technology uh, is very interesting because 
every single human in the entire world, no matter whether you're, you're identical twins, mm -hmm. has a unique internal vein pattern in the palm. Um, and as for the difference between fingerprints um, and the internal palm vein is that a fingerprint um, actually requires physical contact with a reader. Mm -hmm. uh, it creates a lot of issues because of grease or you know, the, the issue, maybe your fingers uh, cut or, or burned or whatever. Um, and this uh, biometric that we use requires an internal vein pat pattern scan. So it doesn't actually leave the surface of the palm anywhere. It's very anonymized for a consumer. And from a retailer's perspective, uh, it's contactless. So mm -hmm. the consumer can walk up, they scan their palm about an inch or two away from the reader. And you don't need to worry about, um, you know, it leaving grease and residue uh, from the fingers. Um, yeah. So this technology has been uh, hugely effective for a registered patient group. Um, but we also have other biometric systems that we've been working on integrating into the kiosk that uh, are based on new digital ID technology. Um, there's some, uh, some document authentication with uh, live facial scan. Um, so all of these technologies have their own place, whether it's in the, uh, the medical applications or in the retail applications. Uh, but we're, you know, we're really concerned about identifying specific people and granting them access to the contents inside the machine. So we have been focused on integrating the top performing biometrics that exist in the world today. Mm -hmm. No, undoubtedly. Uh, what I like about what I like about you is like you personally had to ha identify, like you know, learn a lot about so many different things to do, to do what you do. You know, so from a societal point of view, what's happening, like you know, overall, uh, understanding how data works, understanding how to build a hardware startup. You know, like there's there's so much that goes into manufacturing something, sourcing materials. You know, systemizing the manufacturing process. You know, I know you're working out of a, you have you're you recently acquired like a warehouse. Uh, right, and you're working out of there, um, but also, you know, understanding this kind of technology, right? Like, what has been your journey so far to like acquire this knowledge to get you where you are to be able to launch this thing? Yeah, uh, it's it, it's a longer story. We might have to do a whole episode just. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I went to Mount Allison University. Um, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I studied a lot of different things. Uh, my parents were both teachers, and and I was. Uh, nurtured with, you know, information. I was always asking questions when I was younger, and I didn't really, uh, I didn't really like to just do one thing. And so mm -hmm. when I left university, um, I was, uh, you know, I was a bit lost, you could say. Mm -hmm. And so I told my folks, I'm going to Toronto, and uh, I packed up all my stuff, took out a small loan, and uh, I drove to uh, to Toronto um, in the summer of. Uh, I think it was 2009. And um, when I got to Toronto, uh, I met up with a buddy of mine who I played soccer with. And uh, he said uh, his brother, who was a music producer at the time, needed needed some help. Um, so I ended up interning in this in the music industry. And, uh, you know, they're major music producers. They're doing stuff for uh, Katy Perry. And um, they did Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus and Good Feeling by Flo Rida. Uh, they were instrumental in starting the weekend. Um, so it was a really exciting time to be in Toronto and the vibe was crazy and we were living downtown. Um, but I remember the day that my mentor pulled me aside and said, 
the music industry is going like this and it's mm. getting smaller and it's it's being consolidated into fewer hands uh and this was when you know we were still downloading tracks on limewire um, <laughs> but things were going digital and the internet was becoming more influential in the music industry and he said the music industry is contracting but the clean tech industry is expanding and that's where the growth is and that's where the knowledge and and the funding from governments and the infrastructure spending that's where it's going to be um so i want you to learn everything you can about wind power <laughs> and mm. so i looked at him okay uh, i'll get on that so I uh, downloaded every document I could find and I started reading about wind power. Um, and I was the only one out of us that had like a university background. So I was good at reading and writing and, you know, doing reports and this type of thing. Um, and so I started doing some informal consulting on a wind project in Nova Scotia. And um, one day he came up to me and said, I want you to learn everything you can about solar energy. It's going to be the next big thing. Uh, Ontario just announced these feed-in tariffs, fit contracts. Um, so I cold called every solar company in Canada, uh, and I ended up um, meeting this guy at a solar company who said, I really need some help, um, and he called me back 10 minutes later and hired me. Um, and from there, uh, I, I got a crash course in uh, you know, technology from somebody who's a super genius. He, he went to Wharton after he got like 96 percentile, uh, and it was just like um, I was in this crazy learning environment um with uh you know these two great mentors and from there um we started a, a small clean tech firm um called next synergy and mm. uh, i was flying around to uh you know different countries whether it's in the caribbean or south Af south america um, i lived in the middle east and i was uh, doing a lot of the work that other people didn't want to do which was writing business plans writing market studies um, doing investment decks. And so I ended up understanding the businesses better than the people who were hiring me to do the work. Mm. And from there, I ended up getting a lot of experience presenting uh, these businesses in front of um, you know, the UN Development Committee or patriarchs of families, investors, uh, utilities, and, and government agencies um, from a very young age. Um, so in my early 20s, and uh, it just translated into uh, understanding technology, understanding business, understanding um, the components of a business mm -hmm. and understanding what we needed to have in order to establish a business. Um, and then uh, I was in India and I, I, um, I was getting frustrated because people would pay me to do the work, to tell them. Um, how to grow the business or operate the company, but often they wouldn't listen to my conclusions mm. and it was getting frustrating. It was 53 degrees uh, sitting in Delhi and I said, I'm going home. Mm. So I went back uh, to Halifax uh, in 2017 and then, you know, a few months uh, or weeks later, I had that conversation um, that I mentioned at the start with a couple buddies and uh, from 2017, it just became, what can I grow with my friends and, and my colleagues um, into something amazing? And, and that was dispension. Um, so my background in you know, being an entrepreneur and, and working with some great mentors and getting experience uh, around the world, understanding technology and different business customs uh, really led to um, the 
kind of the experience and uh, the, um, you know, the, the work ethic and the foundational knowledge of, of business um, as I started this mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a journey. And what's cool about that is like you got um, access to so many different like paths and opportunities in front of you. But like essentially you're almost paid to like learn, right? Mm-hmm. You're able to acquire acquire knowledge. I mean, that's that's the ideal place you ever want to be, right? especially as a, a young, uh, ambitious person, right? And, and, and one quote that I, that I always kept with me, and it was from a really great mentor. Uh, he said, it's not about the value that you're getting paid for the task. It's about the value that you're taking from doing the task. Mm. And that really stuck with me because it made a lot of those difficult problems and those difficult tasks disappear um, by understanding and appreciating the value of what I'm learning and the Mm. value of the experience that I'm gaining, not about what I'm getting paid for that task. And so, you know, these, these little things, um, I think they really helped keep the the mental strong. Um, and it's really all about having uh, an optimistic uh, mindset where you can persevere through challenging times and really find the good in every, uh, every, you know, every hurdle. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a problem is an opportunity to find a solution and to, you know, think creatively and um, really overcome adversity. Yeah, I, I really like that quote myself because a lot of people don't take the time to develop skills or develop like a, a repertoire, like like you know a, a foundation to themselves so they can charge more. You know, there's a lot of twenty somethings that are, you know are making fifty thousand, sixty thousand, seventy thousand. They're like, I, I just want to get to the next level. I just, just want to make more and more and more, and they job hop. You know, the, you know that our like our, our generation is really big on that, but they don't take the time to like develop something that they can utilize, right? Uh, Naval Ravikant, um, you know, co-founder of AngelList, is one of my favorite listens uh, people listen to, and he was he he said this one quote that really stuck with me. Right? It's like you are paid proportionally to the problems you solve, and that really really stuck with me. Right? So if you're taking a salary and you're performing a certain function, your paid your pay is directly to the problem you're solving within that firm, and that firm extracts wealth from all the entire problem it solves. But when you own a company, a business. And you take take lead in charging, setting, uh, you know, solving a problem in the market space. You know, and the income you make from that is directly proportional. You, you know, the market responds back to you on how much you solve that that pain point, right? And how you get get around that. And I really like the kind of mentality, right? But again, that goes back to your point. You can only solve things proportionally to your ability to solve them. The skills you have, the knowledge you have, the network you have, and that takes time to develop. And I don't think there's any kind of sophisticated training. This is my biggest problems with like the education system is like there's no entrepreneurial training where it doesn't teach you on a wide level how to develop yourself. Like mm-hmm. it thinks about get a job, you know, get an income and then, you know, move forward in life, have a career. Right. But it doesn't say like, you know, you want to be here in 10 years. You want to be solving these kind of problems, problems. You want to do this at this level. OK, how do you systematically build that? How do you? You know, take the time to develop a network or develop knowledge, develop deeper knowledge and certain things, skills that can utilize, right? And I think we're moving more closer to that as a society. It's like less jobs, more problem solvers. And we're aiming towards that. And I think uh, a lot of people are unable to be uncomfortable. And whether that is financial or whether that's um, being in a, 
challenging environment. Uh, a lot of people are conditioned to be happy and paid on time, um, you know, nine to five, forget about it when you get home. Um, but I think comfort kills passion. So mm. if you're comfortable, you're not hungry. Um, yeah. And so it really took a lot of uncomfortable, hungry nights um, for me to gain that uh, perspective um, that it's not for everyone. Mm. And, you know, I would always think, um, you know, I wish I had more support and more help. Um, why won't somebody else just, you know, work with me uh, and not expect to get paid? And it's because everybody else is focused on getting paid and saving money and, you know, having the, the kind of the life that uh, is typical of, uh, you know, of uh, a young person, yeah. Yeah, society. And so um, from, you know, from my experience, it's always been about the, like the threshold for pain and discomfort um, has been really key to uh, kind of continuing this journey and not having to worry about, uh, you know, having a nice watch or, you know, having um, new clothes or a roof over my head. It was just, uh, you know, everything is temporary. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're, you're working through uh, these challenging times and these painful times thinking about, you know, the value of what you're doing is going to pay off down the road. Um, and so that's kind of kept me going is, uh, you know, the, um, the difficulties and, and the challenges are all part of the learning experience. And I think, um, you know, being an athlete and being part of a team and, uh, you know, I had to run around the field until we puked when I was young. Mm. Uh, you, know, you get yelled at, uh, if, if you made a mistake and, and, you know, disciplined or, whatever, like, I'm sure you're well familiar with, uh, you know, being, being kept in line. Um, and I think uh, some of that has, has been lost in society that, uh, we're, we're not as, um, open to criticism and, uh, and adversity. It's, uh, you know, I want to have a nice, easy life and uh, life is not easy. And I, I, you know, I think the experiences that I gained, um, when I was a kid, and then translating them through with these mentors and being able to endure hardship um, with uh, kind of the bigger picture in mind, the long-term vision. Uh, it's not just about today, it's about tomorrow. And um, putting in the kind of the hard miles today um, is gonna be uh, rewarding in the future. And so that's really the, the mentality that I've had over the last you know decade, really, um, since my early 20s is, wow, uh, this mm -hmm. is not, not easy. Um, and I don't feel very good and I'm hungry uh, and tired, but you're working hard when you're young so that you can relax a bit more when you're older. Um, and uh, a lot of people have to work until they can't enjoy life anymore. Yeah. And I made the decision that uh, that wasn't going to be me and I want to be successful and I want to grow a company that uh, I can be proud of and that, uh, you know, I can create value for my friends and family and then enjoy life um, when I still can. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful statement. And uh, I think we can end, end there. Uh, Corey, this, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ravi. Great talking to you and uh, look forward to catching up down the road uh, if, you have a, if you have another episode you want to fill.
Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.